Welcome to Hope for Life, a broadcast ministry of the First Baptist Church of Ferndale, Washington, bringing you hope for life through the teaching of God's Word. Today, Pastor Lunsford is continuing his sermon series in the book of Hebrews. If you would like to follow along, you can open your Bible to the book of Hebrews, chapter 4. open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. Our family used to have a wonderful Sunday afternoon ritual when our kids were still at home, especially in their junior high, high school years. It really became kind of a habit with us. We would come home after church and have our big Sunday afternoon meal and get the dishes all cleaned up. And then we would all take our places on the couch and the uh, chairs in the living room and uh, turn on the TV to Channel 9 and watch Bob Ross teach us how to paint. Now, if you never watched Bob Ross, you missed out. It's not on anymore. Bob Ross uh, went on to his reward. Uh, I don't know whether it was a godly one or not, but Bob Ross was a nice man. Looked like maybe he'd been a hippie in a previous life. He had a big afro about out to here. And uh, being a white person with an afro, and uh, he had a very nice, soft voice, and he talked about painting, and usually about 20 minutes into it, we were going, <laughs> that was the most glorious part of the whole thing. <laughs> oh, oh. But... Uh, Bob Ross was an amazing guy. In fact, I, we went to this uh, craft show up here in Linda, and we were talking to a lady who, there were some paintings there, and, you know, not everybody who sells things at the art show creates them, and there were these beautiful paintings and prints of paintings, and I said, did you paint these? And she said, yeah. And I said, whoa, very nice work, very detailed work. We were talking about Bob Ross and having a good laugh about that. Bob Ross would start with a blank canvas, and by the end of a 30-minute TV show, there was a painting there, and you know, a scenery type of, you know, the maybe a mountain scene or a, a, a river scene. And uh, we used to we used to try to guess when he was going to make the comments, and he made the same comments every week. He'd paint a bush, and he'd say, "That's a happy little bush that lives right there," and, and we'd try to we'd say, "He's going to say a happy little bush," and sure enough, it was right there. Of course, I, I think we probably also enjoyed watching it because it's really quite a thing to watch a guy take a blank piece of canvas and then zoom out from it comes a painting in 30 minutes. Bob Ross knew, like, the same thing that all great artists know is that you, you have to start with certain parts of the painting and you layer it up and you, you have all of those lines. And that's the difference between Bob Ross and me. Uh, <laughs> I can't see that in the painting. I can't see the layers and see how to bring it all out. He would take this line and then this color and just, boy, it just became beautiful. If you haven't noticed it yet, that's how God wrote the Bible. If I was writing the Bible, that would be a disaster, of course, but I would have put it all together in subject materials, you know, subject A, subject B, subject C. God didn't do that. God started with himself creating the world and, and built the Bible layer upon layer until we have the whole beautiful picture before us. 
And as we come to Hebrews 4, we're going to come to another layer of a truth that's already been told to us in Hebrews. And that truth is the high priesthood of Christ. And we're going to look at the last three verses of chapter 4 and look a little bit more at the priesthood of Christ. And then as we go in the next few weeks, we're going to learn more and more. God is going to keep layering up this truth until we, by the end of the book of Hebrews, are going to have the whole picture of the priesthood of Christ. Hebrews 4.14 Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I haven't found a passage of Scripture to be so rich in my own study in, in some time. This is just so full of truth for our life. We start out with the identity of our high priest and four different titles applied to him. First of all, he is called Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God. The name Jesus was a common name in that day. It was a common Jewish name. In the Old Testament, it's the name Joshua. If you have heard some of the Hebrew pronunciations of the name of Christ in recent years, you might have heard this name, Yeshua. Well, Yeshua, Joshua, it's the same name in the Old Testament. The reason it has a little different form to us, the reason we use the name Jesus, is because when the name Yeshua from the Old Testament is written in Greek, it becomes Isus. And that comes into Spanish as Jesus, a very common name for Spanish people. The name means God will save. Now, by saying it was a common name, I don't mean to demean the person of Christ one bit. Joshua's name meant God will save, and the name of Jesus means God will save as well. But the use of the name Jesus, especially here, combined with the word Son of God, gives us a clue that probably God is here emphasizing both parts of his person. The first part that he emphasizes is the name Jesus, which was the human name the name of Jesus the person. As Jesus walked about the streets of Israel, people didn't call him the Son of God. They didn't call him the Christ. There were times when they came and said, Are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? That, the name Christ and Messiah go together. But they called him Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth. That was his name. And here in our text, it emphasizes his humanity. And that's going to become very important in just a minute when we come to another phrase. Secondly, he is called the Son of God. This is the other half of his unique personhood. If you want to really dazzle your friends, you can tell them that you, Pastor Dave talked about the hypostatic union of the theanthropic person. That's the real technical theological words for the person of Christ. Hypostatic. Two natures together, held together. The human nature was not diminished. The nature of divinity or of God was not diminished. Philippians 2 says that Jesus laid aside some of his attributes. Or, uh, he, 
He controlled them, if you will. He laid aside the glory of heaven, but he was very God of very God. Otherwise, he couldn't have raised people from the dead. And yet, he did not lay aside any part of human nature, save that part which we call the sin nature. He was virgin born. He did not have a sin nature, but he had a complete human nature, and the complete nature of God held together in a way that we can't understand. Many great heresies have been built on trying to understand this hypostatic union. And some have said, well, he was God, but just uh, appeared as a ghost. Some have said he was just a man. You know, lots of religions say that. It's hard for us human beings to understand how God and man can come together so that neither is sacrificed. But Jesus was that unique person. He was Jesus, the Son of God, together in one God-man. Thirdly, here he is called the high priest. Seeing then that we have a great high priest. In the Old Testament, there were many priests. And, of course, if you know your Old Testament, you know that day by day, week by week, they performed a variety of duties in the worship of God. There were two sacrifices made every day at the tabernacle and then later at the temple. There was a morning sacrifice and an evening sacrifice. Then there were special days in which extra sacrifices were made. The way the priesthood was organized was, was, this, was this. Not all the priests were on duty all the time. If you read about a guy named Zacharias at the birth of Christ, you'll find that it just happened to be his time to be in the temple doing the service of God when the angel spoke to him about the birth of John. It was his lot. It was his time. What were they doing the rest of the time? They were out farming and raising a family and so on. And so they served in, in courses, in orders. And the priest served day by day. If you, if you wanted to come and worship, you said, I, I've committed a sin and I want to offer this offering. You gave it to the priest and he offered that for you. Now there was one person called the high priest. And the high priest was just that. You know, we would call him the, the captain of the priests or the president of the priest. He was the top guy. And in addition to perhaps uh, administrating this whole business of the priests, once a year, he was the one who took the blood of the special offering on the Day of Atonement and went into the Holy of Holies to offer this special extra sacrifice, if you will, for the sin of the people. That was the high priest. Jesus is called our high priest. And we're going to learn more and more about this in the next few chapters of Hebrews. But here he is not just called the high priest, is he? What's the other adjective put there? He is the great high priest. This term was not used of any other high priest ever. There were high priests. You can read them about them later on, uh, or excuse me, in the, in the Gospels, you can read about the high priest, Caiaphas. You can read about the high priests who, who were against Jesus. You can go back into the Old Testament and read about the high priest. Jesus is the only one called the, and it's, it's from the Greek word mega, mega, big. He's the mega high priest. He is the great high priest. And I guess just to give you an idea of, of, of real briefly, well, he goes on to tell us why he's the, high, the great high priest. Look here in verse 14 again. We have a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, who has done something unique. He has passed through the heavens. He's passed through the heavens. Now, some of you are saying, heavens? 
You mean there's more than one heaven? <laughs> well, if you read your Bible carefully, you will find three areas referred to as heaven. One of them is what we call our atmosphere. We look out into the sky and there's something between us and outer space. And we know it's real hard. You know, it's real hard to break out of our atmosphere, uh, hence the space program and the great difficulties that are there. And we observed one of those great difficulties just a few weeks ago. There's a barrier between us and outer space, which is also referred to as the heavens by God. We have the heavens right around, the heaven right around us, the atmosphere, and then we have what's called outer space, what we call outer space. That would be what God calls the second heaven. And then we have what's called the third heaven. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 says, I was caught up to the third heaven. And he talked face to face with God. That's what the third heaven is. It is the very presence of God. Well, what makes Jesus a great high priest is that he passed through the heavens, through this one here, through outer space, into the one right in the presence of God. And there are numerous references to Jesus being seated at the right hand of God on high. Now, what is Paul alluding to here? And you're thinking, why is Pastor Dave down here on the floor talking to us? He doesn't do that. Those crazy TV preachers, they do that. They come over and say, how you doing, Jared? Just like that, you know. And you're thinking, get up on that platform and preach, buddy. Well, the reason I'm down here is this, because the high priest went through some things when he did his service. And if we were to think of our church, we might say, well, the foyer is what was called the outer court of the tabernacle or of the temple. And that outer place is where the sacrifice was made, if you will, where the lamb was killed, where the blood was shed. And the high priest would make the sacrifice outside and take the blood and he would walk through the holy place. The place where there is the table of showbread and the candlestick. And one other thing, I can't remember. He would, the incense, thank you very much, the place for the incense. And he would walk through the holy place with the blood, and he would walk right through the holy place and go up and part the curtains and go into the holy of holies where he could only go one time a year. And he would offer that blood and turn around and leave. And in fact, he had a rope on his foot and bells on his garment. And if the bells quit ringing, they dragged him out with the rope because nobody else could go in there except the high priest. And if something wasn't quite right with him and God, you see, the, the high priest in the Old Testament had to go through to come and offer the sacrifice. Jesus had to go through the heavens to offer his sacrifice. The difference is Jesus offered his sacrifice in the real Holy of Holies, not the pictured Holy of Holies. That's why he is the mega high priest. Jesus traveled through the two heavens that we can see to the one that we can't see. And not only did Jesus go through the heavens to the heaven, but he stayed there. And that's where he is. Now, there is a sense in which Jesus is everywhere as God is everywhere. 
But God tells us that he sits at the right hand of the Father on high. The high priest could only go in and out briefly. And then next year he had to do it again. Jesus went up, offered his sacrifice, and sat down. Do you know what the sitting down infers? Work's done. That's right. That's what the Sabbath was about. Why did God rest on the seventh day? Oh, was God breathing heavy? Oh, it just created the world. It just created the universe. No. God said, I'm done. And he sat down. Jesus is the great, the great high priest. But not only do we learn about his title and his travel, we also learn about the temptation of Jesus. Look again at verse, uh, excuse me, at verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but he was tempted like we are in all points, yet without sin. Turn with me to Matthew 4. When we think of the temptation of Jesus, we, we, our mind certainly turns to this uh, desert scene and, and this passage that we refer to as the temptation of Christ. And in your notes, I have called this the obvious temptation. Matthew, did I say six? Matthew four. Then Jesus was led, <clears throat> excuse me. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward, he was hungry. I'll say, <laughs> how many of you ever fasted for more than a day on purpose? Okay. There you go. <laughs> and you felt like 40 days, didn't you? And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Now, when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But Jesus answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus never used his divine power for his own personal benefit or comfort. You will see him specifically say a number of times when he does miracles, that God might be glorified, or that people might see the Father, that sort of thing. That's why he did this. And to demonstrate that he was God, but he never did it because he was hungry. Verse 5, Then the devil took him up to the holy city, that's Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, the very highest point of the temple. And he said, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you. In other words, in the Old Testament, it was prophesied that God's angels would care for Jesus, just as they care for us, in fact. And in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. There is a specific prophecy in the Old Testament that said not one bone of the person of the Messiah would be broken. And so I think there's an allusion here by Satan to the fact that God said your bones can't be broken, so if you jump off the pinnacle here, Hey, they've got to protect you, otherwise God was lying in the Old Testament. Verse 7, Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. In other words, you don't, you don't put your place, you don't put yourself in the place of danger or the place of sin and then say, Okay, God, deliver me. That's, that's capricious, that's, that's presumptuous. Verse 8, And again the devil took him up to an exceedingly high mountain. And it must have been really high because he could see the kingdoms of the world. 
and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give to you right now if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus said, away with you, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Now we don't have time to really get into this today. Could I just say one thing about sin and temptation? Sin, uh, temptation and sin is the short path to what God often wants to give you anyway. Was Jesus destined to be the king of the world? Yes, prophesied in the Old Testament. And, and Jesus knew that. But what would be the benefit of giving in to Satan? Well, he could bypass the cross. Did Jesus want to bypass the cross? Yes, he did. If it would be possible. Did Jesus want to suffer? No, he didn't. Hey, and if Jesus was like you and I with our sin nature, we'd go, well, you know, that's what I'm supposed to get to anyway, so maybe it's okay. Sin is the short path often to what God wants to give you anyway. The thing that I want to emphasize to you today is this, and it's very important that you get a hold of this. That was not the end of the temptation of Christ. I think we have an image in our mind that Jesus was tempted for 41 days or however long this was, and then it was over. Then it wasn't. This is what we would call the obvious temptation of Christ. But Jesus had a human nature. He did not have a sin nature. What's the difference? The difference is our human nature is what temptation impacts and us in our sinful condition always give in to the temptation. But the temptation is not directed at our sinful nature. It's directed at our human nature. You can look at any temptation you've ever had and understand that Jesus had that temptation. Because temptation comes to our human nature. He did not have to have a sin nature to be tempted. Now, because he was without a sin nature, he said no. Because he had a divine nature, he was able to say no every time. In fact, we have another fancy theological word. It's the impeccability of Christ. He could not have sinned because he was God. But could he feel the pull of temptation on human nature? Absolutely. In fact, I think if we understand this correctly, he might have felt it more than you do. Don Hubbard and his son did some painting this week. And Don Hubbard wants the painting to get done right. And it's not hard to look around and find some examples of stuff not getting done right. Now, who cares about a paint job getting done right? The guy who knows what a good paint job is or the guy who doesn't know what a good paint job is? No, this guy over here, he just slaps some paint on and goes away. Well, I put some paint in the wall. No big deal. But the guy who really knows how to do it right, he sees all the little mistakes. Who's tempted more by sin, you or Jesus? Who is, who is impacted more by the temptation of sin? Jesus is, because he knows what it is to be perfect. You might see this much of the temptation. Jesus sees it all. And in his human nature, he was tormented 
by all these little temptations. Think of these situations that we have forgotten about as temptations. In fact, the word for tempted here is in a participle form, and I forgive me for being so technical today, but you need to understand something. It's a past tense participle, which means it was an ongoing thing. He was tempted. He wasn't tempted. It was ongoing. Day-to-day -day temptations. We just read in that temptation there, it, Jesus was hungry. You ever get tempted when you're hungry? Oh, not me. Oh, no, 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 Pastor Dave. I, I am able to control myself perfectly, and I never lash out in a little bit of crispness when dinner's five minutes late. Jesus was tempted before the devil came along. He's starving hungry. You know, when you're hungry, you get a little irritable, etc., etc. He was tempted, and there were many times when he was hungry. Jesus was tired many times. We read about it. And not only that, and I can speak from some recent experience here, Jesus never got to sleep in his own bed. You know why? Didn't own one. I spent the better part of two weeks here a little while ago sleeping in different beds. And in one of the beds that I slept in, the people who lived there had a cat. Now, I really do like cats, and I would like to be able to own one if it wasn't instant allergy when I'm around them. And I slept in a house where a cat, in fact, the cat got on her bed a couple of times and got a rude awakening when it got kicked off. Not my own bed, and I just didn't sleep that great. I love, I love my little warm water bed. Had to get rid of the creamy sheets, though. They got worn out. But Jesus didn't have his own bed. You know, you go away for a couple of weeks on vacation, maybe you don't sleep that great. You come home and you kind of catch up, but not Jesus. He didn't have his own bed. Jesus was frustrated with his followers many times. You ever get tempted when people around you aren't that sharp? You know, maybe they aren't the brightest bulb in the pack. And, and after a while, you, know, you, you have the Christian patience for a while. And pretty soon you just want to go, you idiot! Well, just think of Jesus the omniscient, all-knowing God working with 12 of us for three years. You think you get frustrated. I mean, just multiply that times 10 or 100 or 1,000. We read specific occurrences where Jesus experienced fear, shame, sadness, disappointment, and more. Hebrews 12 is going to tell us about the cross and that whole experience. It says, despising the shame. Don't think Jesus was only tempted for 40 days and then it was over. No, it went on the whole, from the time he was born until the time he died. I mean, you could even go back to his childhood, young people. He had to obey his earthly parents. And lo and behold, he was a guy who knew more than them. Unlike the rest of us who just thought we knew more than our parents. 
Jesus, it tells us here, it summarizes it here in Hebrews 4. He was tempted in all, or in all points, like we are, yet without sin. What's the impact of his temptation? We see it there when he says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize. Let's put it positively. We have a great high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. No one understands like Jesus. He's a friend beyond compare. Meet him at the throne of mercy. He is waiting for you there. No one understands like Jesus when the days are dark and grim. No one is so near, so dear as Jesus. Cast your every care on Him. Friends, you need to understand that Jesus knows what you go through he understands. I had a problem with, my, with the arch of my left foot a few years ago, and I went to the foot doctor, and a series of treatments culminated in her giving me a shot right into the sore spot. You know, cortisone shot. Got to get it right in there where it's inflamed. If you're ever at my house when I'm working, or if you're ever around the church when I'm doing some physical project, there's a very good chance you will hear me holler in pain. Now, you know the old phrase, that's enough to make a preacher cuss? Well, I've never been in the habit of cussing, but I do express my grief. And so I'm there in the doctor's office, and she's putting that thing right into the sore spot in my heel. I'm going, whoa, I've never felt anything like that. And I'm expressing myself. And as I walked past the schedulers out in the front office, they're looking, you know, and, and, and I just said, don't tell me you haven't heard that before. <laughs> and I'm talking to the doctor about these shots because I had to have more than one of those. And the doctor says, oh, yes, in medical school, we had to practice on each other. But not with cortisone and not into the sore spot. You see, the doctor sort of understands what I'm going through but not really because she hasn't been there yet friends Jesus knows what you're going through because he's been in your skin and if I understand the Bible right he's still in your skin just in a perfected condition he understands what you have gone through I mean everything from grief to joy he stood at the tomb of Lazarus and he cried Lazarus was his friend. The people around him looked at Jesus and said, look how much he loved him. Jesus knows what we go through. He is a high priest who understands our weaknesses. What are we supposed to do in light of this great person, this great high priest? Look what verse 14 says. Number one, we are supposed to hold fast our confession. Now, what's the, what's the confession about? The word confession here is the same one from 1 John 1, 9, and it means to say the same thing. We would probably best use the English word agree. 
God wants you to agree with him. What does he want you to agree with him about? I think here he's talking about the confession of Jesus as Savior and Lord. Before you know Christ in a personal way, before you know God in a personal way, you look at him and you have a certain opinion about him. You have certain beliefs about who he is and what he's done. And, after, and at the moment when you are about to put your faith in Christ, those opinions need to change and you need to agree with God. What do you need to agree with God about? What do you need to confess? You need to confess, first of all, that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. He took on a human nature and he died on the cross to shed his blood, was buried and rose again to pay for my sins. You need to agree with that. You need to confess that. You need to be willing to say, that is what I believe. If you've never done that, you are not a true Christian. You may be a small c Christian, but you're not a child of God yet. The good news is you can do that right where you're sitting right now. You can talk to God and say, I've known a lot of things about you and about Jesus, but I have never come to a point in my life where I say, Jesus, you are the Savior. You are the Son of God. I put my faith in you and that alone. See, there are a lot of religious groups will say, believe in Jesus, plus do this and this and this and this and this. God says, no, believe in Jesus alone. You need to agree with him that faith in Christ alone is all there is to salvation. And those of us who have accepted Christ, we can look back at that and say that is our confession. And I believe that's the confession he's talking about here. And he says, in light of this great high priest, Christian, hang on to your confession. How do you hang on? Is, it, is he telling you you need to hang on so you don't drop off and go to hell? I don't believe he is. I believe there may be some people, and there may be even some here, who have sort of believed in God all their life. And maybe even now you're deciding whether you're going to fully believe. And I believe for you, this instruction would be, get a hold of Jesus and don't let go. Truly confess, truly agree that he is the Savior. Truly believe in him. But I believe the primary instruction here is for those of us that are Christians. And he's saying, Christian, don't let go of Jesus for anything. Now you might say, how do you let go as a Christian? How do you let go of Jesus? I think you let go of Jesus when something comes between you and God. Maybe a great illness comes along. Maybe a great loss in your life. Maybe you get fired from your job. Maybe one of your children turns against you. Maybe some great thing comes along. Maybe some small thing. Maybe you get the most wonderful job opportunity in the world, but there isn't a church in sight for hundreds of miles. And you say, I just can't pass this job up, even if it ruins me spiritually. And so we, we sort of let go of Jesus and follow our own path, maybe our path of anger and bitterness, maybe our path of material pursuits, whatever it might be. Why do children try to break away from mom and dad's firm grip on their hand when they're walking in a store? I saw some little kids that way, this, you know, where mom and dad's here and little kids going, oh, let me go, 
you know, why is that? Well, it's real simple, isn't it? Because little Johnny and little Sally have a different idea than mom and dad. I think that's the same answer to the question, why would you let go of Jesus' hand? There can only be one reason. And that's because you've got a different idea than he does. And our author says, do you realize what kind of a high priest you have? He says, don't ever let go. Cling to him. Draw close to him. Hmm. What a privilege is ours. Because we have a Savior who knows us perfectly, we ought to hang on to him with all of our heart. And then the second commandment that he gives us here is in verse 16. Let us come boldly to the throne of grace. We need to have a prayer life that reflects the high priest that we have. The word, the word boldly here does not mean... Not, not the complete sense of boldness that we have in our society. Uh, sometimes we use the word bold about people's actions that are really what we would call brazen or arrogant or proud. You think, wow, that guy's really bold. Look what he did. Now, the word bold here means something more akin to speaking freely. The ability to speak freely. Uh, J. Vernon McGee said this, We can speak freely to the Lord Jesus Christ. I can tell him things that I cannot tell you. He understands me. He knows my weaknesses. What is it that keeps us from coming boldly to God? I think it's the same thing that might keep us from coming to other people. We are timid in asking for help when we think the person that we are going to ask is not interested in helping have you ever felt like God's not interested in what you are concerned about? Well, I suppose it's possible that you're interested in sin. <laughs> and no, God's not interested in that. But is God interested in, in all kinds of aspects of your life? Yes, he is. And I think what God is trying to tell us here is, look at Jesus. He went through everything you went through. He's interested in hearing about your difficulties. We're also timid in asking for help. When we think that the person we're going to ask will criticize us for having a problem. Oh, you, you, you stupid human being, you shouldn't be having this problem. We've talked about this too many times. No. We're timid for asking, in, in asking for help when we think that the person we're going to ask doesn't like us. You know, human nature being what it is, I'm sure at your workplace there's somebody who just doesn't take a shine to you. And they might be your supervisor. <laughs> when I, oh, oh, in the fifth grade, we moved from one place to another, and I went into this fifth grade class, and there was a kid in there that did not take a shine to me, and he never changed all the way through high school. We worked together at the same place, and he did mean things to me at work, just like he had in school. And I, and I always just wanted to say, what, what in the world have I ever done to you? I guess I just showed up and I must have, you know, bummed out your world somehow. But there's people like that. And you might have one for a boss, or maybe your boss is boss, and he really doesn't care for you too much. So you don't go and ask him for help. But you know what, friends? God loves you. God's not up in heaven going, oh, geez, look at Lunsford. Look what he did now. Oh, man. Oh, no, no, he's going to pray. Oh, 
that's the way we are. But that's not the way God is. My son is, is attending school, getting ready to go in the ministry, Lord willing. Every so often, he calls home with a question. Sometimes it's a, you know, the most recent one was uh, he's trying to help somebody at work who's got some relationship problems, and he was asking me kind of a counseling scenario. Sometimes he'll call up and ask something about Bible interpretation, wants to make sure his teacher's teaching the right thing, you know. <laughs> Sometimes he'll call up and say, I'm going to have beef tonight, and how do I marinate it, you know. Do you think that I start my answer to his questions by saying, well, Ben, you idiot, can't you figure this out? Of course not. He's my son, in whom I am very proud. Why would I not want him to call and ask for help? It's a compliment. I'm just thrilled that he calls and asks my opinion about anything. Yeah, without, that's right. Amen. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about, parents. Hey, listen to this. Listen to this. Matthew 7, Jesus said, What man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask? Not only the Father, but our great high priest. He understands us. In Romans 8, we read this, for you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. That's a Hebrew word for daddy. Daddy. Friends, God is joyfully waiting for you to ask for help. That's why, did you notice here in verse 16 of Hebrews 4, his throne... Is called the throne of what? Grace. You know what the word grace means in the New Testament? It means giving, a gift. Sometimes in the form it's written, it means just that, a gift. It's the throne of giving. <laughs> Isn't that something? The throne of giving. And in fact, probably the best understanding of this last phrase is, we can obtain mercy and find grace in a helpful time or in a timely manner. God's not up there sitting on his hands, you know, busy watching TV. He's waiting for you to call because he loves you. And you know what? When you ask God for something, it is an act of worship. I'm, I'm so tired of folks who say, now when you go to prayer, you've got to be sure and worship first, and then ask God for things. Well, it's very good and it's very important to give thanks and give praise, but you know what? When you ask God for something, you're worshiping Him. Because you are essentially saying, God, you're all I got, man. You are the only person who can help me with this. And that honors Him as the creator, sustainer of the world. One author put it this way, Since Christ finished his redemptive work and sat down beside the heavenly throne, that throne has become a place where grace reigns and is dispensed. 
It has, been the cent it has become the center of divine giving. Wow. Wow, what a great thing. You no doubt have been fascinated by the story of Elizabeth Smart in Utah, as I have. Kidnapped, held, somehow ma made to act like a member of this other family, either through fear or, or whatever means he used. So that even to the police, she didn't want to identify herself. We're thinking, what in the world? Well, I don't understand it, and I don't have any answer for it, but you know what? There's something I don't understand even greater than that. A greater mystery, and that is this. Why in the world would anyone not want to claim and cling to Jesus as their high priest? Friend, don't let sin brainwash you into taking any other course of action except loving Jesus. Father, oh, thank you for our great high priest. Thank you for yourself and your great love for us. And thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit in us. We are privileged. We are blessed beyond what we realize. Father, help us to cling to Jesus. Help us to pray and seek your help. Thank you for being a loving father. I pray in Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to Hope for Life, the broadcast teaching ministry of the First Baptist Church of Ferndale, Washington. You can learn more about our ministry on the internet at www.ferndalebaptist.com or you can contact us by mail at First Baptist Church, P.O. Box 69 Ferndale, Washington, 98248. Telephone, 360-384-3111. We invite you to join us for worship Sunday mornings at 1045 a.m. Our prayer is that God's Word will give you hope for life.